Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. remember, I don't know, the very first time that you ever sang a, a song or a hymn and you truly believed the words that you sang? I don't remember like the very first time necessarily, but I do remember where I was, the space that I was in. I was at Camp Inaba, which is a United Methodist camp in the Eastern Pennsylvania Conference of the United Methodist Church, and we would have these campfire worship services every night singing all of the 90s worship hits like Heart of Worship by Michael W. Smith and Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. Sean knows all these songs. <laughs> and all I, all I remember is that like, being in that space, it was like time did not exist. It was like nothing else in the world mattered other than sitting in that circle, whatever shape we were making, with my very best friends in the world that I met yesterday, because that's how camp works. But just sitting there in the very, very real presence of God. Now, I experienced a call to vocational ministry uh, really early in my life, but I took the longest road possible to actually make it a reality. But every time I read a certain text, I remember those early moments when, when life was a lot simpler, when God's voice seemed a lot clearer, and when my guard was dropped a little bit more than it typically is as an adult. This comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. And Isaiah is having a vision of God in the temple, and it says this. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, and each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with the other two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then 
I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. The vision of the prophet is one that basically encapsulates every moment that I have with God when I'm really trying to get out of the thing that I'm pretty sure that he's called me to go and do, right? Uh, yeah, you guys too? You know, I'm like, well, I don't know, God. I am a man of unclean lips from time to time. You do know where I live, right? Fort Pierce, Florida. Lots of people with unclean lips there. I don't know if I'm the guy. I don't know if I'm the one, God. I'm sure I even said this as, as a child, right? But the Lord reminds me, reminds us, that that's not our identity. We want to disqualify ourselves from ministry, either because we truly believe that we're not good enough, or because we would much rather do anything else with our time, right? But the prophet Isaiah reveals to us the heart of God towards us, that we are people who have been made clean by the power and by the grace of God. And, you know, this is one of the main reasons that we come to worship each week. This is one of the reasons that you all need to be here, why I need to be here, to be reminded of this fact regularly. And then in the worship space, we celebrate the grace that's been given to us, been bestowed upon us by God. But we also come to the worship space to receive that which Isaiah received, marching orders, a direction to be the people who answer the call of the Lord when God says, Whom shall I send? Here I am. Here we are. So we're in a sermon series called This Is Us, where we are looking at a new mission, a new vision, and new values for our church that will provide a future of vital ministry. See, our mission at First Church is flooding the treasure coast with the transformational love of Jesus, right? Top of Indian River County to the bottom of Martin County and perhaps even beyond. And we're going to accomplish that by creating, equipping, and mobilizing 610 disciples So by 2030 so that heaven and earth collide on the treasure coast. And we believe that God is doing something new in Fort Pierce and that Our church, right here, is at the very, very center of that something new. And so the ways that we are going to accomplish this extravagant goal of creating, equipping, and mobilizing 610 disciples in six years is by leaning into and living out our core values, our identity, the things that make us unique, the things that we believe that God has created us for so that God can live out the purpose of Jesus Christ through us into the world. 
And the first of those values is passionate worship. One of the first things that we need to understand about worship is that worship is not simply something that we engage in on Sunday morning. It's not something that we only engage in when we are gathered in a formal setting or in a special place like this space. Of course, that's all an important and vital aspect of worship, but worship itself in a Christian context is a way of living that exemplifies the lordship of Jesus and devotes itself to glorifying God and building God's kingdom through words and actions. So you might be like, okay, but what does that actually look like? Because I've been around churches for a long time, and that's not really how church people live, right? (laughs) Well, maybe there is an easier example of what this looks like in the world than your experience of the church in America in this current moment. Because the truth is that we are people that are created for worship. And we are people who worship day in and day out. In America, we love to worship. We worship 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's most obviously seen in the fact that nearly 365 days of the year, there are ballparks, stadiums, arenas, and basketball courts filled with people worshiping their very favorite sports team. And leading up to the game, there are people worshiping what's going to happen. And after the game, there are people worshiping what did happen. And we all sit on our couches or in seats in stadiums, and we think to ourselves, man, my favorite sports team is the very best one. Every single person in those seats is is thinking about how their favorite team could be, should be, or is the very best team, a team worth devoting their lives to, whether they'll admit it or not, a team worth arguing with other people on the internet about, a team worth following through the bad times, a team worth rejoicing over during the good times. A team worth sitting outside in minus 27 degree weather to watch win or lose a football game. Listen, I'm not looking down on that. I am from the city known throughout the nation of America as having the most devoted, that's what we say, you all say, rowdy and annoying sports fans in the nation, we say we're passionate. (laughs) We love our teams. And I just wonder, you know, if we were as passionate, just in the city of Philadelphia, as passionate about Jesus as we are about the Eagles and the Phillies and the Flyers and the Sixers and anybody else that plays any sport in the city because we don't care. If we were as passionate about Jesus as we are about them, what would the world look like? If we were willing to sit outside and worship Jesus when it was negative 27 degrees outside, what would the world look like? If you and me were as beat down, broken, and upset at the losing record of the church 
as we are when our team's in the slump? What do you think that we could do? How do you think we could invest our lives and our time into a church and turn things around? So while I let that just settle into your brain and explode later over the dinner table, maybe, I'll tell you a story. <laughs> you know, there once was a nation that split in two. Over the course of a thousand years, the relationship between the two nations had deteriorated to the point of basically open hostility. The people of both nations had a similar religion. They worshipped the same God. But because of their differing opinions on some aspects of their religion, they remained separate. One of them decided that it was only appropriate to worship God in a historic place on a mountain called Mount Ebal, while others decided it was only good and appropriate to worship God in a special place called a temple in a city called Jerusalem. This was one of many points of contention between these people, a, a point of contention that we look at now and we're like, that is very silly. But people have started wars and certainly split their religions and their denominations over smaller disagreements because humans are, well, we're fickle people. Now, Jesus of Nazareth came from the nation of people who worshiped God in the temple in Jerusalem. And one day... Jesus decided that he was going to travel through that northern land, right through the territory of the people who worshipped God at Mount Abel. These people to the north were called Samaritans, and when he arrived, he had a divine appointment with a woman who was a social outcast. She was drawing water from a well in the hottest part of the day, in an attempt to avoid all the other women of the town who would have drawn their water when it was cooler out. Women who looked down on her because her past was less than blemish-free. So this is the record of their encounter. It comes from the Gospel of John chapter 4. It says, A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty the water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may be ne never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. 
And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And I just really love this interaction because it's, it's beautifully odd. It's like both Jesus and the woman of Samaria are kind of like feeling each other out. They're like exchanging subtle jabs, you know. It's, it's weird. And as a person who is myself weird, I like to think of Jesus as also being weird. He's the God of the weirdos, Right? But more important than it exemplifying just the strangeness of Jesus, what I think it really, really offers us and presents to us is this vision of a Jesus who allows people to come to an understanding of who he is without force. She's exploring Jesus' identity. He's playing along with her allowing her to do so. So going forward, she's going to question this strange man at a well a bit further. Picking right up where we left off, she says to him, she says, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father near, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. And so here we have it. Jesus' point to her is complete. She has come to an understanding of who Jesus is, and Jesus has offered her two things. Living water and an invitation to worship God in what he calls spirit and truth, which for today simply means unconstrained by formalities and a specific physical location. And these two offers go hand in hand. You see, water had long been and has long since been a sign of God's activity in the world and in the life of a person. In the church today, we recognize this through the sacrament of baptism, where we declare that people are members of the community of faith and the family of God by passing through water. Through the sacrament of baptism, the giving of living water, we declare that people are freed through God's grace to truly worship God. And so the question is, 
what does this actually look like for us? Or better yet, what should it look like for us? Well, the woman's response is a model for us. It says, just then his disciples came and they were astounded that he was speaking with a woman. The scandal. But no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. And she said to the people, Come and see a man who has told me everything that I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they left the city, and they were on their way to him. And then a short time later, it says, Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. See, our worship, our our passionate worship should look like this, a brave and bold desire to go into the world and just simply say, come and see. In fact, our ability to create, equip, and mobilize disciples depends on our drive, our desire, willingness to go into the world and say, come and see, because I don't know if you know this or not, but people do not become disciples of Jesus Christ by accident. They become disciples because somewhere, someone somewhere said to them, come, come and see the man who changed my life. Come and see the community that changed my outlook, my perception on human beings and the world. Come and see the love that I have felt when I encountered the people of God. Come and see what's happening in downtown Fort Pierce. Come, come and see. See, our passionate worship in this space is something that we must carry with us. Our worship here is amazingly skilled and amazingly impactful, amazingly inspiring, and I don't know if I would want to live my life without it. But it's our responsibility as people who have taken on the living water to go into the world and say, come, come and see. You know, before Jesus sat at the well and offered living water to the woman of Samaria, God had long been up to changing the world using the simple elements. See, when God began creating, the earth was covered with water. God parted the water and made the dry land appear. And then when the water, when the world had delved into darkness, and the world was flooded. God created a way through the water in the family of Noah. 
when the Israelites were freed from Egyptian captivity. They passed through the water of the Red Sea. And on the other side, they found freedom and safety. Then again, the next generation of those people passed through the water of the Jordan River into the Promised Land. That same water, that same river that Jesus, after he passed through the water of his mother's womb, went to be baptized by his cousin John. That same water that we baptize one another into the family of Christ with today, living water. So today we're going to remember that in the water of baptism, we aren't just made part of a community, but in the baptism of water, we are ordained for Christian ministry into this world. Through water, we are told, go, tell people to come and see. Through the water, we say, here am I, Lord. And so in a moment, I'm just going to invite you to come forward, to dip your hand into the water, and hear the words, remember your baptism, and be thankful.